0: Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. I'm John Engle, Content Director for Renewable
1: Energy World. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode of Factor This to introduce you to the Renewable Plus Series from Renewable Energy World. Don't worry, we'll get back to tackling solar's biggest stories on Monday. In this Plus Series discussion, panelists from EDP Renewables, Generate Capital, and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory break down what's next for green hydrogen. While green hydrogen's versatility offers potential answers to some of the energy transition's most challenging questions... Factors such as scale, scope, and affordability
0: remain daunting challenges. That's why we brought together investors, developers, and researchers to outline green hydrogen's path forward. You can check out our Plus Series archive,
1: including deep dives into community solar's growth and the future of floating offshore wind,
0: at RenewableEnergyWorld.com. Now, the Renewable Plus Series Green Hydrogen. What's next for the energy transition's secret weapon?
1: let me introduce you to our panelists. Brian Privivar is a senior research fellow at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and an expert on hydrogen fuel cells and green hydrogen. Brandon Moffitt is the VP of Business Development at Generate Upcycle, part of Generate Capital. And Anna Kalish is the Managing Director for Hydrogen at the Clean Energy Developer EDP Renewables. Well, Brian, Brandon, and Anna, I appreciate each of you for being here and and lending your expertise to such an important and great discussion here about green hydrogen. And I'm especially excited about this roundtable that we're having on the Renewable Plus series, not just because green hydrogen and all of its promise in the energy transition and its importance in, in the current climate, but also because we're bringing together three core elements that are critical to its success. That's research. Financing and development. Brian, want to start off with you, um, our our representative from NREL and our our expert on research that's going on in the in the space. Can you start us off with a a state of green hydrogen? Where is the the R and D at the moment, and um, what are some of the answers that we we still need to find?
2: So, green hydrogen is usually made from renewable electricity running through electrolyzers, and What's happened in the last decade or so is, is that the renewable electrons have become much more abundant and much cheaper. But the devices that can take water and that green electricity and turn it into green hydrogen are um, at a very premature stage of development. And, and they've been used for many years, but the scale that they've been used at and the applications that they've been used at have typically been applications that would afford 5 to $10 per kilogram types of hydrogen. And what's going on is we need to make it $1 per kilogram hydrogen or as low as we can get. And so there's a lot of research that's going into the different types of electrolyzers that can enable that transition. The three primary um, electrolyzers that have been doing this, alkaline electrolysis has been going on for a long time. It's been deployed at the 100 megawatt scale a few times in the history of the planet. Um, And it's a reasonably developed technology. But it has usually been used in applications where it's been run 24-7 at a continuous level. So there's a lot of R&D that's needed to basically take the electrons when they're available and they're cheap to allow for dispatchable green hydrogen to be made. There's proton exchange membrane electrolyzers, and these are leveraging some of the technology that's been developed for um, polymer electrolyte fuel cell vehicles. Um, but being run in reverse. So at the same time you're creating devices that can run um, transportation, you're also creating the reverse devices, the electrolyzers that are enabling you to create the hydrogen to run those. So you can close that ecosystem. And a lot of the research that's been done in PEM fuel cells would translate over to PEM electrolyzers. And finally, there's solid oxide electrolyzers, which run at much higher temperatures than the other devices Um, They offer the promise of having um, higher efficiency. Um, But what happens is is that you need this high temperature to basically make them run. So there's a lot of talk about trying to integrate them with uh, nuclear plants or other things like maybe concentrated solar that can provide the heat as well. Each of them has tremendous research uh, challenges. And there's currently a lot of effort trying to pursue all of them. To get their capital costs down and help them operate on the duty cycles that make them really applicable for the energy transition, what's coming next.
1: Is the research spread evenly in those buckets, or is is one taking the lion's share of of funding and attention?
2: So um, the research is not evenly spread. And when you say not evenly spread, there's also a domestically versus an international aspect of that. So um, domestically, um, a lot of the focus has been on PEM. Um, And then less research has been done on solid oxide, and probably alkaline has had the least research dollars, at least from the federal government standpoint, being put into it. But with the bipartisan infrastructure law um, that was recently passed that dedicated $1 billion over the next five years to do this research, all the three topics were specifically noted. They won't likely be balanced. There are some aspects of this which are... It's believed that the PEM systems, the polymer electrolyte membrane electrolysis systems, um, have an ability to respond dynamically better than the other systems, and they can shut down and start up perhaps better than the other systems. So if you're not trying to run them continuously, um, they may have some advantage. The alkaline systems are trying to address some of their limitations versus PEM, and they have advantages in that they don't have um, things like titanium, iridium, and platinum that are required for their use. Um, and the solid oxide systems are, are a little further behind. So globally, PEM is seeing the most effort, and then solid oxide and alkaline are, are slightly behind. But if you look at production rates today, alkaline actually has the largest market productivity, um, and, and then um, PEM is second, and solid oxides behind it.
1: Well, and Brian, we'll be talking more about the bipartisan infrastructure law, I'm sure, in this discussion as we get further down the line. Um, Brandon, picking your brain as, as both an investor, but also on the development side and your, your broad exposure to green fuels. I mean, you, you heard all those use cases that I brought up in the, in the setup, where is the market heading? Does it seem, um, for, for green hydrogens most effective deployment or impact or, or does it have answers for, for each of those issues?
3: Uh, it has the answers for each of those issues. Uh, the devil's in the details, as you can imagine. Uh, we really like the, uh, the e-methanol space. We're seeing lots of uh, groups kind of looking at that, Maris being one of the leaders in being able to do that and taking hydrogen and biogenic CO2 to make uh, e-methanol. Uh, there's lots of interest in focusing on ammonia as a carrier to be able to, to move hydrogen uh, across the oceans to whether it be Asia or to Europe, uh, there's interest in the transportation sector to be able to use it. Uh, you've got a variety of truck OEMs that are working on hydrogen as a fuel. In that case, you've got the chicken and the egg and You need the trucks to be able to use the fuel, but you need the fuel to be able to, to feed the trucks. And so that becomes a bit uh, challenging, uh, though the forklift space as an example has done very well in terms of the use of hydrogen uh, that that there, the other one that we're seeing more and more traction on is in the decarbonization of natural gas, which you raised. Um, we're skeptical or at least concerned on the idea of hydrogen dedicated pipelines at the distribution scale into the homes. There's so much existing infrastructure in the ground that's a natural gas that can't handle any significant amount of hydrogen nor the legally allowed to take in hydrogen to di- transmission or distribution lines. So we have also see uh, the use of, of uh, synthetic methane. And so that's where you're taking CO2 and you're methanating the hydrogen and allowing you to get in the pipelines unrestricted. And so we've seen projects in Europe and uh, interest in doing those in North America as well. And so uh, it's it's not one of it's all of them. And, and within each sort of vertical, you've got... Uh, good and bad things that are going on. But uh, hydrogen as its own molecule is tough to handle because it's compressed or liquefied, but that takes a lot of energy and moving it around is really hard. And so either using a nitrogen to make ammonia or a carbon dioxide to make methane or methanol is some areas that we're seeing more and more pickup. And this is all focused on using electricity as the input, not where you're seeing sort of People that want to take waste and gasify wastes and things like that to make syngases that they can then clean up. That's an entirely separate sort of kettle of fish to be able to to spend time on. Uh, And so I'm focused right now on the idea of green hydrogen from electrolytic, but happy to discuss uh, the other areas that we're seeing interest in the idea of producing hydrogen.
1: Yeah, and we'll get back to that a little bit as well. Um, And I think that segues really nicely over to to Anna and and EDP and and what you are already doing in the space from a development perspective. you know, I won't make you answer Anna for for all of the hype cycles that hydrogen has been through. Um, I I would think that's unfair for you to bear bear the weight of that. Uh, but what is EDP new doing now, and can you share even some of the challenges that come along with being a, a, one of the first movers, at least in the U.S. when it comes to development?
3: Sure.
4: Uh, well, first of all, um, on on the point that you raised about hype cycles, it's very true that hydrogen has had many hype cycles in the past. Um, I guess there were all uh, short-lived um, because the reasons that uh, uh, that drove that motivation was not as fundamentals as as they are today so today I truly believe that uh, the motivation for us to be talking about renewable hydrogen is a profound belief of the need to decarbonize the economy and to fully decarbonize the economy and of course uh, direct electrification uh, and energy efficiency—we will do a lot of the job here. But really, you know, for that last mile of the decarbonization, if we're truly committed with that, then direct electrification will not be able to do the entire job. And, and so, it's really for that, uh, for those those applications that we're talking about renewable hydrogen. So the the motivation is 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 very structural. And, and apart from the decarbonization, especially here in Europe, of course, uh, we also have a lot of concerns on, on energy security of supply and the hydrogen, the renewable hydrogen can also play a, an important role here uh, in, in increasing our uh, independence from, from, from natural gas. Uh, so, in terms of, uh, of what we're doing uh, as as developers, so for those of you that are not familiar or are so familiar with EDP and the group, uh, so we are a, a, an energy uh, developer, uh, leader uh, of renewables globally uh but in some markets we are still a vertically integrated uh, utility so present in the entire value chain of, of power so from the conventional generation uh, all technologies in and the renewables of course um operating grids and and being very present on the on the retail side of the business so with uh, with solutions to our clients apart from you know the the traditional retail but uh, but uh, also providing self consumption electric mobility uh, energy efficient solutions and all that And, and through EDP renewables, uh, we are present uh, in, uh, in, in a lot of markets globally. um, And we are actually the third uh, wind developer globally. And we have the the ambition to be all green by 2030 and, and, and fully um, decarbonize um, our operations by then. Um, However, we still have in our portfolio of generation, conventional generation assets, we still own six coal sites, and by 2025 we have committed to the market that will be coal free by 2025. So one of the type of projects around the renewable hydrogen that we are developing is the concept of hydrogen valleys or hydrogen hubs in the sites where we own uh, coal facilities. Because all of them, either they are already shut down or they will be pretty soon so we are not using the coal power plant in itself so that's going to be demolished so we're using the land and the fact that our coal sites are all or or most of them uh, on the ports and so our next door neighbors are you know the heavy industries like the refineries, the, the petrochemical, the steel makers, all the good candidates to, to incorporate hydrogen in, in their process. And having, of course, uh, deep water ports nearby, because these coal power plants used to work with imported coal. So having the ports there also uh, potentiates these sites for longer term exports. So this is the reality in projects in, in Portugal, in Spain and in Brazil. The most advanced project that we have along those lines is one project here in, in Portugal. It's a 100 megawatt project that we're developing together with other partners, including the refinery, which the refinery that's going to be the, the anchor of taker. and that project has already secured support from the European Commission funding. A second type of project that we are developing is around our renewable assets. So we're growing at a rate of four to five gigawatts a year. We're uh, doubling our installed capacity installing 25 gigawatts of new renewables between roughly half half between wind and solar and and also roughly half half between north america and in europe and either around some of our existing assets or pipeline of renewables that we have to develop there are certain certain conditions under which you know hybridizing these assets with hydrogen increase uh, or brings added value like in some wind wind farms that are coming to the end of their PPAs, this is happening a lot in the U.S., or or wind farms that are facing a lot of curtailment, or we want to repower, and there are grid limitations. So under um, certain uh, conditions, there's good reasons to believe that um, uh, selling the renewables through hydrogen, um, it's an additional route to market for our renewable assets as well. And of course, coming from from the clients uh, in the places where we have a, a solid retail base uh, it's the clients that are approaching us um asking typically industrial industrial clients so asking for our support on understanding exactly how hydrogen can be incorporated in their process so typically either replacing you know plug and play um gray hydrogen for re- renewable hydrogen or uh for those processes that require very high temperature heat uh, and in those cases, mainly replacing natural gas with hydrogen. So I'm very aligned with what Brandon just mentioned before of being skeptical about using utilizing hydrogen for low temperature heats in, in buildings. Uh, uh, I think there are much better options for doing that uh, from the technical and also the economic point of view. So hydrogen is very versatile. Uh, that's the beauty of it. But um, But not all applications have the same value. That's clear.
1: Yeah, Brian, can you speak to that a little bit too? We, we've touched on it a little bit in this conversation about the preservation of assets and even the substituting of hydrogen for you know other other fuels, whether it be natural gas or, or blending. What are what are some of the challenges there? It seems like even to those who are very um, supportive of green hydrogen and hydrogen hydrogen more broadly, there are two camps on the preservation of asset and and the blending front. Um, what What is some of the research underway there in, in both transportation and storage and then um, even when it comes to combustion?
2: Yeah, so um, a lot to chew on there. Um, the first thing I'll say is there is a value proposition for hydrogen, right? So um, we've done work where we've looked at, um, we've done analysis on kind of the technical and economic potential of hydrogen. And it's clear that some of these applications like long haul or heavy duty transportation are at the high end of the spectrum and then low quality heat are at the the low end of the spectrum. Just because of what consumers are used to paying and what other options can compete in this space against it. Um, There's also this issue of entrenched infrastructure. So um, we have um, a consortium that NREL helps lead. It's called High Blend it's looking at blending hydrogen into methane pipelines, either using that as a distribution route for the hydrogen or using hydrogen with methane combined in combustion processes. But in general, using hydrogen in the combustion processes is losing some of its value proposition because then you're only getting the energy associated with the hydrogen bonds and and the hydrogen molecule. Whereas hydrogen also has this ability to do things like electrochemically, Um, be converted in fuel cells at much higher efficiency, or do things like the direct reduction of iron to make steel. Um, Again, another aspect, or make ammonia, things that electrons by themselves can't do. So when we talk about the parts of society that can't be electrified, hydrogen's got this real specific role in it. The issue is, is that right now, Not only is it more expensive to produce hydrogen, it's much more expensive to store and distribute hydrogen. So we usually go with the make, move, use, and store aspects of hydrogen and how do we make them all cheaper. And scale is a huge issue for this. Um, I always think of natural gas as the most clear parallel to hydrogen. And the only reason that we can move methane, the the, um, energetic molecule that really represents most of natural gas, is because we have this half trillion to trillion dollar infrastructure that's been invested in. And that's one of the challenges of moving hydrogen forward is what happens in this infrastructure space. And that is things like, how do we use the entrenched infrastructure to allow hydrogen to be used? But you can also see that in the markets where hydrogen's first accessing like forklifts, because you can bring in one liquid tanker of hydrogen And supply all of the infrastructural fueling needs for it. It's also why places like ports or some of these other locations that have you know tethered fleets have better opportunities. Um, and then you know, you kind of go from captive fleets to tethered fleets to predictable fleets, so buses and long-haul trucking to then what's the hardest, which is basically an entire infrastructure that hits everything. So there is this um necessary build-out of infrastructure and the, the other piece where hydrogen gets complicated is we have a necessary build out of infrastructure to carry more electricity as we electrify um, society and bring in more wind and more solar. There's an inherent cost to that. And then there's also pragmatic challenges about how energy dense the transmission lines are for carrying these things, whether or not they can put in be put in. When you talk about things like hydrogen, With a single hydrogen pipeline, you could replace 20 transmission lines in a single go. So a lot of this does come back to kind of the scale of energy and where you're moving energy as well. But the entrenched infrastructure is really a big piece of this. The bipartisan infrastructure law comes back into this because there's an $8 billion for these hydrogen hubs that can try to help start the infrastructure in some of these regions. But you'll see a lot of the approach is more focused on how do we start these hubs or valleys or islands. Um, to get hydrogen economic locally, and then try to use a spoke and wheel type of approach to kind of expand that out. Well,
1: and Brandon, how crucial is it that that infrastructure build out happens from from generates perspective? Even as an infrastructure, you know, project investor like you are, um, for for the company, the individual companies that you also partner with, without that infrastructure from the government um, side of things, it, it has to be difficult to to make a lot of these. Um, investment decisions and and plan for the the next five ten years. Um, you know, as we're I guess out over our skis a little bit on on green hydrogen.
3: Yeah. So the point that Brian brings up on entrenched infrastructure is important to know. And and the question is is how to be able to capitalize on it and when you need to be inva- innovative and creative to necessarily find other ways to be able to move your molecules and and energy to market. And so there's different ways to be able to do that. Uh, Anna's brought up a good point around ports. And so the it's understanding a the hub or the regional infrastructure that you could be able to develop and be like, all right, how do I capitalize on those resources to be able to allow these projects to, to happen? There is more than enough work to be done by everybody that's on this phone and as developer or in this call uh, to develop this infrastructure. And we just need to lead the way to set the examples for others and then allow for cost to be kind of drove out of the marketplace like wind and solar had happened in the past. And so that's very much something that we can do. The challenge is it's not always about the capital uh, on this, it, like there's cost of capital to make sure the capital can flow into the marketplace, but it's the actual cost of the inputs to be able to allow someone like us to be able to invest into a project. And Brian raised the dollar per kilogram. The challenge is with wind and solar and the pricing now and the capacity factors that they are, we can't get below a dollar a kilogram just on the electricity to feed the, uh, the electrolyzer as it stands today. And so the question comes back on the input cost and the OPEX to run it, not necessarily the capital to build it. And whether that's private capital, such as ourselves, or uh, government money to be able to support, it's around kind of what the input costs are for the hydrogen or the electricity to make the hydrogen, the CO2, or how to be able to get the other inputs that you may need, and then the financing, financeability or bankability of the contracts on the output side. And so we talked a little bit briefly about kind of trucking and that side, and the problem is, is that... Those groups can't sign up to long-term contracts because they don't know their their offtake kind of capacity. Uh, you've got utilities that could be able to buy uh, hydrogen or synthetic methane that could go along on it. Uh, you've seen Maris because I mentioned earlier, kind of willing to do ten plus years on offtakes to be able to help unlock the market. And so ourselves as the capital providers very intrigued and interested in being in the space, but and we need to drive out costs. Uh, but the issue is going to be the input costs to make these products. Is something that we need to continue to focus on.
1: Anna, any thoughts there too? I, I figured that you might um, have some insight around, especially that the offtake conversation um, with the, the customers that you're talking to about green hydrogen. You you mentioned that a lot of the times you're just setting the stage also for what the opportunity is and what your plans are and, and how it could fit into their processes. Um, but are, are we seeing these deals come together yet or is it still in its infancy?
4: It's it's very much in its infancy. It's very much. I mean, everybody's aware, everybody's interested, but when we we, we really come to the real numbers, uh, it's uh, we we easily understand. There's today there's no business case. So in, in general terms, of course. Uh So to, that's why there's no market. That's why we're here to create the market. So if there was a business case, there there was a market by now. So there's no market because there's no business case. So there's an important competitiveness gap that still we need to bridge against the alternatives, the fossil fuel-based alternatives. So it's very much like developing onshore wind 20 years ago. So we recognize that we need to do that. We recognize that we're still in the infancy, so we need to... uh support the path forward through a comprehensive set of policies and regulatory framework that will align the incentives and, and, and you know, and a combination of some carrots and, and, and stick type of policies uh across the entire value chain so from the the generation all the way to the application so the generation the 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 the, not not the renewables themselves because they're considered mature or most of them but the the production of of hydrogen the logistics uh and the applications that the end use applications so uh we see a lot of interest uh but very little um willingness to still commit to long-term arrangements on, on the offtaker, of of course, now the, the high natural gas prices, high CO2 prices is helping. Bit, and also, there's also the, the understanding that renewable hydrogen is pretty much like renewables in the way that they it's an instrument that also works as an insurance against price, price fluctuations in the future, because it's all about capital. It's like developing renewables for the power sector. It's all about capital. So once you invest, you are pretty sure about the costs for the rest of the lifetime of that asset. Uh, because the input is renewable, so it's again it's all fixed costs, um, and 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 water, which is a very 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 small component of the the levelized cost or the cost to produce produce your your hydrogen at the end of the day. So it's an insurance policy in the way that it. It really will not your your, your price your input price from an industrial perspective. They know that we will not change with with natural gas or or, or with C O two price. Of course, we can uh, have arrangements like that, but fundamentally it's it's fixed. So that also has a value. So I think at, at this time, really, we need um, some support, uh, funding support, and 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 in the U S. in particular, we see some movements around that. Uh, uh, certainly, at state state level initiatives, but also the hubs. Uh, at the federal level so, so providing here some some support um electrolyzers clearly the costs will um will will go down pretty much like 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 brendan just mentioned like renewables uh, on renewables uh wind and and, and and solar even even onshore wind that we still consider it we today we see it as a mature technology but it's not uh, you know um, um it, it's it's not yet st- completely stuck and 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 stopped with the learning curve and the same will happen with lateralizers for sure the lateralizers that we are installing now in in 6 years from now will be completely obsolete in terms of their efficiencies in terms of uh, everything so that's actually one of the reasons why i think we should start small <laughs> we we still have so much to learn we we have so much to learn on the hydrogen on, 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 the business model, on the technology, on, uh, on the regulatory front, um, that I think, uh, we, 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 you know, by, by promoting small projects and different applications, the learning process will still, will of course inform a lot of, you know, long-term ste- decisions that, um, uh, we, we, I think, uh, we may, um, delay uh, to a few years from now, like on investments for you know, on infrastructures, like uh, you were describing um, a few a few minutes ago.
1: Well, let's let's talk about the hubs. I think we've each uh, each mentioned them so far in this this conversation. The hydrogen hubs and the billions of dollars included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill were I, that was one of the most exciting pieces um, to to see come out of that massive uh, piece of legislation, and seeing the states that are already jockeying to get. Those those hubs located in, in their home state because of the economic promise that that could follow, um, I guess, probably more for, for Anna and Brandon on this one. But um, what d- does that give customers the certainty to finally move forward with some of these offtake agreements or long term agreements that as the as the federal government moves forward with these massive infrastructure projects to support private industries like like you're both in? Um, is is that the the right domino here to to make things move, or is it just a, a piece in that that broader puzzle?
0: Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening.
3: Uh, I'd say it's a piece in the broader puzzle. Uh, the, it's not the be all and end all. It's very helpful. Um, but at the same time, the off takers care about the price for the product that they're going to buy on a long term basis. And if that money is able to support the overall weighted cost of capital to be able to build the infrastructure, then that would be helpful, but that's not going to necessarily do it. It's, it's helpful, but it's not going to drive it. Um, the other thing though is, is, understanding the timelines. So that process that the, the government's laid out is pretty long and arduous and requires a lot of time, attention, and money to be able to put those applications together and have them be successful. Uh, private industry is running at a different pace than that program. And so we think it's beneficial, but uh, the projects that we've been looking at and, and pitched and are working on ourselves are not predicated on that being done. It's a nice to have, not a need to have. And so uh, that's become a bit of a political kind of game where you have seen a lot of states and everybody wanting to be involved in it. And and, but that doesn't always fit our time horizons or even our customers' time horizons. So it's not to say it's a bad program at all. It's very intriguing. And we continue to watch it and and understand where we can play a role. But it isn't necessarily going to be where we're going to focus our time from a business perspective
1: can you go into that a little bit more on the business pers- perspective because I think it's great that that you and generator are part of this conversation because you do go into these long term um you know equity relationships with project developers and companies that is different than um you know, putting up debt um or just just capital that's not tied to partnership. what what are some of the things that you're already involved in and and taking action on um on your horizon? What is your horizon?
3: Yeah, so, so we are already very active in the renewable natural gas uh, business. Uh, we've been doing that for a number of years in food waste and agricultural waste and things like that. And we sell that gas to, whether it be the LCFS program in California or natural gas utilities like Fortis BC and in British Columbia, as well as voluntary buyers. Uh, kind of an Anna's point where industry wants to be able to do their part to decarbonize because they've set their own goals. Uh, and so we already sell renewable gas. The problem is we can't make enough of it With our own assets or with the developers that bring us projects. And so we need to find other ways to be able to do that. And green hydrogen plays a role either as a direct uh, replacement or in making synthetic methane as an example. And the market today, though it's going to be more costly to make it from green hydrogen, the market will buy that product. You have utilities that have included a sort of power to X as a means to be able to allow them to buy for 10 or 20 year contracts at uh, elevated pricing because they're trying to decarbonize and sort of fend off the electrification movement. And we're not here to decide which one it is. We're there to provide the energy that the market's asking for. And so that is a product that people are buying today. I mentioned earlier, Maersk said, hey, we're willing to buy for 10 years and there's other uh, marine uh, buyers that have stepped up and started to do similar things with dual fuel ships on methanol. And those are going to, like I think some of the commitments on them are like 2025, 2026. That doesn't line up with, say, the hub uh, money. That's a different kind of path. And so that's why we're saying it's beneficial. It's something that would absolutely uh, potentially accelerate. But that doesn't mean we're holding our breath that that's what needed to be able to drive this. Private industry will continue to roll and evolve. uh, And so that's where we uh, were paying attention, but it doesn't uh, underpin our business.
1: Do we see any one sector as likely to to gobble up what supply there is in in the next 5 to 10 years and and buy moving first um in having that demand for green hydrogen um, you know locks in their future over the over the next 10 20 years or do we expect there to be enough supply that scales uh, you know 10 15 years to meet everyone's
3: needs? I don't that, those are that's a complicated subject. Uh, I would say, can I pick a sector and tell you which one? No, that'd be that that would not be a good way to forecast in terms of where that's going. But you are seeing certain sectors that are taking a leadership role, whether it be the marine space or the the uh, decarbonization of, of uh, the natural gas sector and things like that. Again, these are all in the right direction, uh, along with like mobility and things like that. Um, I don't know yet. It's all going to be about who's willing to pay the dollars for the molecules and the cost. There's the cost to make them and there's the cost the market can accept to buy. And so if you produce e-methanol and, and the market is in the that fuel is going to be 5x what the existing price is. The question is, can the customer being the marine uh, sector handle that? And then can they pass that through to their customers? I don't know. That's going to be something that time will tell in terms of their customers and how that whole supply chain kind of works. And so that's something that we'll continue to monitor and and be involved in. Now, uh, the question on can we meet the market demand? We can't meet it today for where the market demand is today. And more and more people are looking to enter the market. And that's back to Anna's point. The price to make these products is more than most people are willing to pay. And so we're trying to understand that to figure out which one is the next mover uh, so that we can be able to do that to allow us to drive out costs, but we always got to come back to what is the input cost to make these things, and how can we do it faster, better, cheaper, uh, because if you think about renewables and wind and solar as an example, uh, we can't run these assets at 20-30% utilizations, they need to be running like 90 plus, plus. and so you're trying to take a wind and solar capacity factors and line it up to electrolyzer running at a much higher capacity factor, the, you're looking at needle and haystacks right now on where this infrastructure can can be feasible, and so it takes a, a, a village to make this all happen. And but we have a long way to go uh, in terms of building out the infrastructure that's required to meet the demand that even exists today.
1: And on the development side, is it does it make sense for you know large scale wind and solar um, developers to to add green fuels into their their portfolio and approach and and you know vertically integrate these projects together, or do you see us having more, you know, pure play green hydrogen companies popping up and and taking that market share? Is that a way to drive down cost?
4: Well, actually, I think what you see today in the market is a lot of movement from completely different backgrounds. So uh, we see a lot of interest in people uh, participating in the, in the, uh, in the ecosystem of renewable hydrogen and some come from the oil and gas, some come from you know the the, the logistics uh, uh, the, the equipment um, the manufacturers and the renewable developers like, like ourselves. So I think actually the renewable being a, a renewable uh, developer and a major renewable developer is one of our um, distinctive capabilities that make us believe that we have the right to win on on the hydrogen production itself. And this is simply because uh, the input cost of electricity renewables uh, represents two thirds or sometimes even more of the total cost to produce hydrogen. So it's really critical to master this part of the value chain to be able to be competitive. So we believe that it's 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 fundamentally different than a, 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 a you know a, a hydrogen or an electro someone that will invest on the, on the electrolyzer and will procure the renewables through a competitive process uh, on the market and source through a, a, a PPA or a direct right connection, but with a you know like a, a, with a third party by integrating the activities, we really play with uh, you know a portfolio of renewables. Uh, So, for instance, in in the U.S., we own today and operate around seven to eight gigawatts of of renewables. It's mainly wind as of now, but we're also growing on offshore wind and, and, and solar. And so by really having a portfolio of renewables to play with, um, you can better optimize, like Brandon was saying, it's really the optimization. There's that going into that sweet spot of the combination of the right profiles of wind and, and solar and, and some energy uh, that you get from the grid to source your, your, your electrolyzer and to optimize all of that and, and play with the storage, both on the electricity and on, on the gas side. Uh, so really having that, that, that portfolio to play with the deficits and excess of renewables. Uh, and having the energy management, the trading capability behind, brings value to to the to the hydrogen projects definitely.
1: Brian, can we talk a little bit of, about green hydrogen for um, long duration storage? The the long duration storage is uh, you know one of the, the bigger challenges that we face in this um, decarbonization push with you know variable wind and solar, um, more of it coming onto the grid every day. We an exciting announcement in the last month or so was the. DOE Loan Programs Office Jiggershaw's office um awarding the loan guarantee for the long duration energy storage project there in Utah another uh, generate tie uh, which is nice uh, where do we see that fitting into this this broader conversation um you just have so many use cases that it's difficult to fit, fit this into you know an hour long discussion
2: yeah and, and and a lot of this comes back to the premise for this is cheap renewable electrons spill into cheap renewable hydrogen or green hydrogen. And then the green hydrogen serves the markets that are the most economic first, Um, but by generating more and more of it, it spills into other markets. And the ability to do things over longer timeframes and potentially distances are two of the bigger assets of hydrogen the sector shifting is also a, a big asset um a lot of this you know does come down to how much long duration storage is needed um and then how expensive is it but but if you're talking about storing energy over weeks or months or years or or holding an energy source in reserve that is 20% of our energy something like either a strategic petroleum reserve or kind of how much natural gas we hold um, in storage at any given time, you, you, you absolutely can't do it just with batteries or electricity. And so, for for some aspects of um, reliability and resiliency, um, you're going to need things that go beyond um, batteries in wind and solar. And you know, if you do take away fossil, um, then you know hydrogen can fill that role as well. Um, The question is, is what's the right balance between either, you know, it could be um, renewable methane or it could be natural gas. That doesn't necessarily matter when you're talking about system buffering and balancing, but there's a finite amount of all of these different resources. I mean, solar is so big that it's um, more than we could ever use and and wind has more resource than the planet needs to run it, Um, but they're all still finite in there's also economics of where the best places are to get them. And and so long duration storage for hydrogen is something that it can do and it can do well. But if you try to just store hydrogen for doing just the long duration storage, it's not as economic. If you basically have a large system that basically is used all the time, but then seasonally also adjust to handle some of this long duration storage, it's the hybridization of hydrogen in with the other things in the energy system that really provide a lot of the value and allow things like long duration energy storage to be more economic because the market of power generation isn't the driver for hydrogen. It's it's basically something that it can fill as it's doing some of the other things that are more economic first, probably.
1: Well, I was going to ask Brandon, too are there market examples and market economics examples that we can follow from natural gas's trajectory not just in the US but globally that that we can look to as we try to piece together the framework of how hydrogen will work um in the business case
3: uh yeah so a couple things there so the First is you're seeing the natural gas peaking plants that are facing pressure uh, in progressive markets. California, as an example, up in Ontario, where I live, there's a big push because natural gas has taken more of the electricity sort of production than in the past, which means your carbon intensity is is going in the wrong direction. Now, having said that, you're seeing progressive groups that are looking to those uh, peaking plants saying, I'd like you to run uh, green hydrogen in that plant to be able to get to a, a lower carbon dispatchable kind of resource. Uh, But the question is, is how do you be able to store that hydrogen, uh, whether it be salt caverns or making other products and using existing kind of entrenched infrastructure to be able to do that? And so we're seeing the business cases kind of go there. The challenges on long duration is, well, okay, I put it in a salt cavern, but who's paying us during that time while it's sitting in that storage for weeks or months? Uh, That's not always straightforward. And so us as the capital providers, like, I need to be able to sort of monetize and make sure the asset is is paying for itself. And if there's no incoming revenue attached to it, that's not always the most productive. Or if it comes in a big slug at one time, that doesn't really work well either from cash flow perspective. And so every situation is a bit unique. Um, we we like the idea of you've got wind and solar in and, and West Texas and in ERCOT and other areas, and you could be able to make that into hydrogen or other products and be able to move it cross country rather than always running, say looking at transmission lines. It's to me, it's not an or, it's an and in terms of how we think about these types of things. And so that's why regionally we need to look at where can we find the lowest cost, most highest capacity factor renewables, and what markets are willing to to pro- or buy that energy in whatever form kind of makes sense to them
1: and on the west texas front i do seem to get a press release uh, about a memorandum of understanding it seems like every week or two of of x projects um agreeing to partner with export on a, a green hydrogen paired with wind you know facility in texas and a lot of these project announcements or or memorandums of understanding at this point are not contractually linked it appears yet to financing as is, is is there still a difficulty ob- obtaining um, capital for these, these projects or like you've been talking about, Brandon, are there just so many other dominoes that need so, to fall?
3: So there, in Texas, you've seen a number of announcements on various projects uh, in the case of, say, making methanol. And if you look at the ISCC rules, which is the European standard uh, around that, they require biogenic CO2 to be able to, to sell that product as, as say, an e-methanol product. Well, there is very little biogenic CO2 available in the Gulf Coast, like there's just not very much available. And so the question is, as you see these monster projects that are there that you're like, all right, where are you getting the red CO2 from to be able to do that? Because you can't use mine CO2. And those rules don't necessarily allow sort of flue gas capture off a fossil derived source, at least what we've seen so far. You can get in direct air capture, but the cost for that input CO2 gets very, very expensive. And then you're into the biogenic side, which if the inventory or the resource doesn't exist in that marketplace, you're like, all right, how does this kind of line up? And so doesn't mean there's not good projects and there's pockets where this can make sense, but just because it's in a press release doesn't mean it always matches up to the facts on the ground. And so it's understanding the devils and the details on how to actually execute those projects. And so that's something like us is where we're digging in to make sure that we're like, all right, does this all hang together? and, and, it's pretty easy when someone's like, I would like an e-methanol product and it needs to meet this specification. And you're like, All right, how do all these things kind of tick together, leaving price all aside? Just can you make the product to meet the standard that is required?
1: Well, and to your point about press releases, you get enough engineers in the room and, and put some technical language in there. And I think trade press are, are easy to deceive if you if you put it I, up in there, it's hard. I, it's, not, it's
3: it's it's it's, it's People need to build momentum on their projects. So it's not knocking people. There's various reasons why communications come out early or late. And and so it's always trying to dig in, understand the specifics of any particular situation.
1: Anna, how do we decipher fact from fiction for green hydrogen project announcements? Do you have
4: a, a code? No, I don't have a code, but but uh, but certainly a, a a big part of my time is really to explaining to, to my CEO uh, what project announcements are reality and what project announcements are not uh, reality, and uh, it's it's not really a, a concern. But like 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 Brandon was saying, you know, we see a lot of a uh, pharaonic, um, really pharaonic uh, size projects being announced, and and when you go and 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 talk with with the developers, I mean you don't even need to to to, to throw in uh, deep technical uh, questions because uh, you, you you right away understand that they've never done an electrolyzer a a kilowatt uh size electrolyzer so um so really have having uh, experience of actually doing something uh, and having uh, projects operating um i mean it's 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 very rare that you find a developer that has experience in in doing something. Um, So if people tell you that they're they're doing one to two digit megawatt size projects, then you know they're working. They're really working. They're doing something. (laughs) They're going through the the hassles of trying to understand the regulatory framework, the licensing, talking with the authorities. No one really knows how to go about the projects because everything is new for everybody, uh, even from the administrative point of view. Um So they they know the the process of going through the the, you know, the procurement of they know that you know the 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 costs is, is not the textbook multipliers that you see on literature review you know that you know it's not just the then you have to put in the compressors and and the pipes and and the building and all that uh, can double the costs of your project so only once you really you know boots on the ground and and with with real projects. Um, you, you 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 face the the, the reality and the, and and, um, and and so it's it's very very easy to distinguish um you know PowerPoint projects than 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 real 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 projects. PowerPoint
1: projects. I might have to. I, I'll steal that one, Anna. Go ahead, Brandon. <laughs>
4: Just to build on Anna's point, it it doesn't mean that any
3: of the developers and, and partners that we work with can't come out of other sectors. It's there are people whether it be wind and solar, whether it be oil and gas, or other infrastructure, very smart people out there that are working on their projects. It's just trying to be able to, to engage with people that can, you can guide and steer and give advice that will get it done at the end of the day and understand the steps and staging their risk to make sure that you're de-risking a project on the way so someone like us can actually come in and finance the project because you're not on a sprint at all. This is a marathon and uh, it takes a long time. And so if someone's like, I'm going to bring a project online in 24, 24," I'm like, no, you're not. Uh, it's much, much later in terms of how that things come together because lead times on equipment and you're like the executing a several hundred million dollar project and that takes time. And so there are many people out there that are incredibly smart and are working hard at this. And so you try to give advice, but people need to be willing to take that input and be like, you're not ready for money yet. This is my suggestion on what you need to do to be able to advance your project and come back to us. And so some are willing to take that, others are not. And so it's... But it's going to be challenging because there's going to be projects that get built that do not succeed, and that will be challenging for the marketplace. But that's part of the things that we've all learned and seen over time.
1: And other technologies have had to overcome those those same hurdles. Um, Anna has mentioned a couple of times in this conversation the value of producing or uh, developing smaller projects, starting small. Is there an is there an additional pathway? where we see developers like EDP and others partnering with each other in the ways that we've seen offshore wind development, just given the the scale of some of these projects and the capital that'll be needed to take them on. um, Not just with, you know, the, the green hydrogen production, but the wind and the solar and the the distribution um, questions we need to answer. Do you see a lot of partnerships come together? And then I guess even on top of that, can can generate and other financiers be that um, umbrella to connect multiple developers and companies to be able to achieve kind of a singular goal like that?
4: Well, uh, certainly, I see that movement on on uh, on uh, on the partnerships. Uh, not just uh, uh, because of the reason you just mentioned, not just to get scale and, and to de-risk the projects, but um, but to complement competences because uh, the the hydrogen value, value chain is really really complex like for us we know how to do renewables but hydrogen for us is new and and further down uh, down downstream on, on 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 the business we know nothing about uh, e fuels we know nothing about uh, um you know the, the, the industrial applications that that consume the hydrogen the steel or or the refineries that's not our business and so um even for, for the reason of, of you know, aligning incentives along the value chain, um, these partnerships or cross investments uh, make, make, make sense. Uh, and for us, uh, for, for, for us, for the profile that we have as renewable developers and, and promoters of renewable hydrogen projects, the most valuable type of partner for us is the offtaker and 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 i'm 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 calling him a partner not a client because really the market is not in a condition where you know you you can treat the taker as a client and the producer as a, as as a supplier and just negotiate the terms of the agreement on providing the service is the market is not there yet so really the taker has to embrace with you on a journey uh, of something that is new so it's 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 uh, um we're all going to learn we're going to have all the room to be creative on the way we set up this in terms of the business and the contractual arrangements uh because there there are no standards in place um and so th- we have to be aligned on the mindset that we're doing this for decarbonization and we share common goals and common vision and and by doing that we also share the risk of developing a, a, a large size or a small size or whatever a pilot project that we can later scale up if, if the conditions are there but we're doing that together and we're learning together and in some of our projects we're doing that open book fully open book uh, with with uh, with uh, with our partners um, really because we're still all all learning in 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 this process so clearly partnerships it's going to be critical. is going to be essential to do it uh, to do it right.
1: Do those partnerships extend even beyond commercial, but even state procurement um, that as we've seen for I, I keep saying offshore wind, It's I know it's a completely different technology, but as nascent as it is, it's depended on states like California saying we're, we, we will procure 10 gigawatts by 2030 and and so on.
4: Well, the reality is that at this point in time, we are not seeing public procurement uh, there yet. Maybe some small. There are small examples, of course. We see small examples, like for instance, in France, there's a lot of public procurement for public transportation on on, on hydrogen because of their uh goals to decarbonize, and and uh, some utilities. We may see some that happening in the U.S. Some utilities on the natural gas side that will start procuring uh, renewable gases to to blend in in their network but we see more of the private will um, and um, especially here in Europe is mainly motivated By uh, you know targets and standards like mandates, they really have to decarbonize. So they really have to incorporate renewable hydrogen or renewable gas into their process. Otherwise, there will be penalties uh, to to pay. Um, So we see a lot of the the private the private will, and also uh, an important driver that we see, especially here in 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 Europe, um, is a window of opportunity to capture public funding um Through recovery and resilience facilities, so a lot of money uh, the member states have, um, and the European Commission has provided to the, to the member states to to really um, um, re-boost re the economy through uh, green growth. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, funding opportunities, specifically directly to the promotion of renewable hydrogen projects. So we see that also being an, an additional an additional motivation.
1: And before we wrap up with some audience questions, I want to go around the 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 table here, um, so to speak, and and get some forecasts from each of you on what you think is the next five years or so for green hydrogen. If you need to extend that time horizon, as Brandon said, nothing is happening overnight. So maybe <laughs> make it 10 if that makes you more comfortable or or even more. Um Brian, any thoughts on on where you see the, the research and development evolving and and this near term horizon of of stuff you're working on?
2: Yeah, so it's going to get cheaper, right? Um, the the scale that it needs to be rolled out at is really going to be behind where we need it to be and want it to be. And there's this challenge of, of how fast we can roll out the green hydrogen versus what's happening on the infrastructure side of moving and storing it. And I think that it's not all going to be green, right? So we have a lot of hydrogen today that's gray, um, There's going to be blue hydrogen and it can be produced at larger scales quicker than the green hydrogen can. So it's going to be a complex interplay of many different types of hydrogen that help seed these markets because we're simply not going to be able to generate enough green hydrogen to do all of the things that we need in kind of the short and medium term. But we're going to be ramping up basically as fast as we can in some of these things from a research perspective the conversion devices, the electrolyzers, are going to get cheaper. They're going to get more durable, and we're going to understand their operating strategies better in terms of how to integrate them into these systems.
1: Brandon, how about from your side in the, the capital
0: markets?
3: Uh, we'd love to be in a situation in five, ten years' time, where on a connected load side, you have several hundred megawatts of connected load, uh, connected electrolyzers uh, producing various products. That'd be fantastic. That's more my view than necessarily uh, something that we're all signed up for from a strategy side, but uh, that would be something that's there. Realizing that this is not just a North American opportunity. This is a global opportunity and wherever we can make those molecules, the the, the lowest cost, most renewable is going to prevail. Uh, and so it's understanding that. And so we need to make sure we don't put up artificial barriers that uh, cause challenges around that. So whether it be Mandates that there are mandates uh, in North America for renewable gases, but they say it's got to come from within our state or the adjacent, the existing province or the adjacent province. And you're like, why are you putting boundaries like that up? Let's find a way to do this for the lowest cost. So we'd love to be deploying several hundred megawatts of electrolyzers to use kind of the, that is the connected load as the, as the proxy. But, uh, would love to see that and see where things kind of go from there. But at the end of the day, the, Input costs are going to drive where and how this industry grows.
1: Anna, would you like to round us out?
4: Sure. Uh, well, I think the way I see the market evolving, I, I see it develop in, developing in a decentralized form. And uh, decentralized doesn't necessarily mean small scale, but you know, production close to where you have the consumption. And and by doing that, you know, avoiding all the complex logistics that is not in place uh, today and it's not going to be in place in five years time. Um, so I think there's a tremendous potential to learn for for the industry to evolve for costs to come down to get scale by numbering up uh, you know the, the the number of projects so by develop uh, developing different types of projects, um, in a decentralized form and really longer term, I think the market will evolve like uh, natural gas uh, did and, um, and especially LNG. So I really believe that longer term, there will be, you know, uh, international trade uh, of, of hydrogen in, 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 in its various derivative forms. Um, and, uh, and there's really a potential that, the hydrogen. I think I truly believe that hydrogen, apart from being being an important piece of energy and environmental policy, it also is a tremendous, you know, instrument for industrial policy. It has really the potential to relocate industry um, and and to to promote economic growth in different different dimensions.
1: Excellent. So let's um, let's finish up here with a couple of questions that we've gotten from our audience, um, and I think I might pose this one to Brian first the the question of green hydrogen for for ammonia and, and and fertilizer and the global shortage that we've seen is is green hydrogen an answer there um and where are we in the 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 path for for research and application
2: so green hydrogen for green ammonia is a great pathway for it and it's one of the places where hydrogen has to be used um so whether or not it's green or a different color and and how quick green can be a big player in it is also the issue so you know i think that Brandon was talking about some of the competition between these spaces and the centralized aspects of it can also be an important piece of it um the Haber-Bosch process that goes to making most of the ammonia doesn't recognize whether it's a green ammonia, a, blue, a, a green hydrogen, a, a blue hydrogen, um, or a gray or black hydrogen. It just knows that it, it's going forward. So it's one of the easier places to put hydrogen as a drop in solution as green hydrogen versus some other type of hydrogen. And the ability to expand the ammonia markets also include fuels or energy transportation is another big gain for this. And so when you talk about maritime or you talk about vectoring of energy through hydrogen carriers, ammonia is a, a strong target molecule for that as well.
1: The next question we have is, is about the distribution system. And we have touched on this a little bit, but do, do we see that there will be a willingness to build out a distribution system for hydrogen that's necessary, knowing the, the siting challenges that we already have with existing pipelines and, and some of the concerns from, from folks more in the climate environmental space that, um, hydrogen adoption will only, um, entrench fossil assets or be used by, oil and gas companies that that want to extend the life of natural gas systems longer?
3: That's a tricky one. Uh, any pipelines, uh, there's going to be challenges and pushback, whether it's moving hydrogen or CO2 to bring the CO2 from one asset to uh, another spot to be able to do that. That's going to be tricky on a regional and local sense, no matter where you do this. Uh, and so that's something that will need to be discussed and, and consulted with the various stakeholders at that particular level. Um, yeah, it's it, there's no good answer for this one uh, that we see. Uh, it's gonna be through consultation and engagement with stakeholders on where that's at. Um, the, the fact is, is those entrenched sort of in infrastructures are very cost effective on moving these products around. And so Brian brought up ammonia. Uh, there is an existing ammonia plants that are all over the place that if they tacked on a electrolyzer on the front end, they can make green ammonia uh, more cost-effective than trying to do a new ammonia plant themselves. And so these things are going to happen, whether it's in the gas space or in the ammonia space and others, and it's how do we do things faster, better, cheaper, and it's going to be working with some of these industries that's not always going to be received well, but through conversations and dialogue Hopefully you can make progress on it, but there will be times where it's not going to be tenable to anybody. And so that's something that all of us need to understand in whatever role we play in the value chain.
1: Okay. And this one, any of you can take this one, but what is the priority to de-risk or or lower cost as we're talking about hydrogen, green hydrogen scaling? Is there one area that we want to put ahead of others um, throughout this process that? That Generate is tackling or that that NREL is is working on behind the scenes and and even you know, the development front for a EDP. Is there is there that one line item?
2: I'll, I'll take this on first because when when we talk about the challenges for hydrogen, we break it down into kind of this make, move, and store, and then use. What's happened is is over the last 25 years, um, fuel cells for transportation have had billions of dollars put into them, and you can now buy commercial vehicles in certain areas, and they're showing their value in forklifts and in heavy-duty transportation. So there's still changes as you go to stationary and heavy-duty compared to the light-duty sectors that have really piloted this. But the fuel cells have shown a lot of progress, and they have a ton of research in it. The, the move and store aspects are less technologically um, limited. We have hydrogen pipelines that have existed for a long time. We have salt dome storage. The, the make side of this and the electrolyzers are really where a lot of this focus is going and why we have a billion dollars in the bipartisan infrastructure law of the 9.5 billion for hydrogen total focused specifically on electrolyzers. Um, I lead the consortium that's called H2NEW for the next generation of electrolysis technology. And we have to do in 10 years for electrolyzers what we did in 25 for fuel cells and maybe 40 for wind and solar to basically get us there. And there's still real research questions about how cheap we can make these things and the duty cycles that they can operate on and how that impacts their durability and the overall economics of the system. So from my perspective, the development of electrolysis technology um, is going to be a real challenge but it's one that's getting the focus now that's going to be needed to basically allow it to fit into this because if you can't make the green hydrogen cheaply enough it really makes the rest of the situation more difficult so it's kind of the first domino that has to fall.
1: I'm John Engel. Connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter, and let me know what you think of Factor This. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's most important topics with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Factor This from Renewable Energy World. We'll see you next time.
0: Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.